Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic. My co-host, as always, is Aaron Cameron. Our guest today was introduced to us by the Real Estate Forums as part of our forum series. He's a repeat guest, which I guess makes him a friend of the podcast. That's the, the official status of people that come on twice. Nice. It is a... Yeah, <laughs> you can put that on your LinkedIn profile. Well, and I got, I got one better. Yeah, no, and Adam and I like are the only ones that care about any of these stats that are absolutely useless and pointless. But you are, you definitely hold the record for repeat guests coming back most recently after their previous episode. So I, I had more BS in my podcast than the average yeah. uh, speaker. Is that what it is? <laughs> the plaque is in the mail. You'll get that put on your wall. For anybody that hasn't memorized Peter's voice from his last appearance, this is Peter Cuthbert president and head of global real estate at Fiera. Welcome back, Peter. Thank you. Nice to be here. So we encourage people to go back and listen to his episode. We will include that in the show notes. It was great. And it was, Aaron alluded to, it was very recent. We recorded that at the large real estate forum at the uh, that goes on in Toronto back in December. And we did a pretty good hour there on Peter's background and who Fiera is. But we are going to do a quick summary now for anybody who's not going to you know go back and listen to it just kind of set the stage for the conversation. So Peter, if we can kind of jump into the five-minute version of what Fiera is and what you do. Sure. So Fiera Real Estate is a 100% owned subsidiary of Fiera Capital. We're real estate investment managers. We run a series of open-ended, closed-ended, and segregated mandates, all focused on commercial real estate, all sectors, so office, retail, industrial, multifamily, and pretty well all geographies in Canada. There's not many major cities that we're not invested in and managing assets on behalf of our investor clients. We're about four and a half billion under management in Canada. And we also have an operation now in the UK that's running another billion and a half in Canadian dollars, similar sort of focus, but smaller. And we're building that out to create what will ultimately be a global platform, we hope. Peter, could you go in through the different funds that you have? I'll be wrong, but five or six of them now? Yeah, we have. So I'll start with the SEG accounts. We have three separately managed accounts. Two are for pension plans. The third one's for a workers' comp board. So those are customized accounts for those or customized investment strategies for those plans. We have a series of closed-ended funds that are focused on value add and development. There's several billion dollars of construction contracts attached to those funds. We have a small cap industrial fund. It's open-ended, focused on obviously small cap industrial, and it's quite attractive and plays in the, I'll call it the smaller end of the market in terms of asset size and lot size. And then we have a large open-ended fund that's approaching $3 billion under management. And it is all sectors, all geographies, and follows a, a prescribed investment policy that keeps it balanced. Not to give it away or to spoil anybody that's going to listen to this episode and then go back, but Peter's got a long, long history of working in, you know, the deeply in the commercial real estate world. And correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going off of memory, but you were attracted to sort of the capital raising sort of fund management side of the business, which I think is how you ended up kind of where you are today. Maybe talk about what it's been like starting in COVID. And I guess we should do that. Today is, I don't know, someday in May, someday of some week in 2020. There you go. Oh, Cinco de Mayo, of course, I knew that. So you're now basically two months into quarantine. What's it been like for you talking to your funds, talking to the different investors and just what messaging are you giving to them? Yeah, so it's unique. I mean, the circumstances that have triggered all of this are very unique and unprecedented. The impacts 
are not unknown. We've gone through these sorts of financial turns in the past, and they do impact very much in the same way. So what does our world look like? Well, the first step was to you know, all the time that we believed that we had systems that would allow us to work mobily and from home if we had to, and, you know, we had a business continuity plan, et cetera. The first step was to actually find out whether that really did work or not. And fortunately for us, yeah, we were well set up. And for the most part, we did very well in terms of moving from that environment, from a work from office environment into work from home environment. Effectively, we just moved all of our regular routine meetings and interactions uh, into a two-dimensional video screen. Had a few glitches with technology as loads and loads of people loaded onto the system that I'm not sure the system was quite ready for the load. But generally, it was business as usual. I think the changes is we, in the early days, we had a daily COVID management meeting with our senior people where we identified the day's priorities, reviewed the prior day's priorities. And most of our time and effort was focused on messaging. So keeping our investors informed about what's going on and what our view was dealing with our tenants. So trying to understand how they were being impacted, which ones were at risk, which were not, and anticipating impact and action on government announcements with respect to financial assistance. All of those, surprisingly, the comment we got back from our team was, I think I'm working harder and more hours <laughs> than I was when we were in the office. A little anecdote to that is I think that experience has been met with different views. You know, our introverts are saying, you know, I'm quite happy working this way. We don't have a lot of those in our business, but there's many of them that are actually saying outrageous things like they miss their daily commute. And I think of that as we went from a three-dimensional living with all the sensory elements that you get. So smells and sounds and dropping off at the local coffee shop, all those things that you used to have as a human connection suddenly disappeared and everything you're doing is through this two-dimensional single audio channel. And I think people are really realizing that they don't mind hanging out together. That yeah. It's okay I, to hang out. I had a question lined up that I was going to wait to the end of the podcast, but we're here now. So let's go. And I, I have two comments before we go. One, I had friends show up and surprise me. And we were in my backyard on Sunday, the beautiful day we have, it was 20 degrees out. And they were sitting there and we kept our social distance. But for that first minute or two, it was the first people other than my wife, my three-year-old and my six-month-old that I've had any face-to-face interaction with in eight weeks. And there was a bit of nervous. It's like, how do you do this again? How do you have that <laughs> conversation? How do you, I can see you moving and I can read your body language. And I was having sort of a, a mental overload with all the sensory because again, I'm, I'm just used to staring at, staring at a little screen with, I can just see you know, the top of your head, Peter. So I don't know, right? Anyway, so that you're absolutely right. My question was just around team morale. You know, I'm fortunate enough to be involved in some of the conversations at First National. The way we've kind of seen it was phase one, as you've described, which was just crisis mode, get everybody home, get everybody safe, get IT involved, get your technology working so you can continue business. Then phase two was kind of everybody getting into the swing of things and business as usual, you know, as unusual as it may be, was getting back to normal. Now we're entering what is almost like, like I guess, phase three where... You know, how long is this going to last? People's mental stability and just being able to withstand the stresses of working from home. As leader of your team, like, what are you doing and what kind of activities are you taking to make sure that your people are staying sane and not working 70, 80 hours a week because there's no disconnect between the office and home life? Yeah, it's a bit like a sports team, right? We're right in the mid-season grind on this. So novelty's worn off and this is our new reality for the time being, for sure. Although there's positive talk about re-entry, but I think, you know, what we've done is constantly reminded people of the opportunity set that's ahead of us. So we've done the typical things that a lot of companies are doing. We have a Friday Zoom social or WebEx or whatever tool we choose to use. We've encouraged additional meetings between peers, you know, to stay close and connected. We've had a few contests. So things like that, just to keep people joined up. 
But I think in terms of messaging for the entire team, my view, and this would date back to, I sound like the old guy as usual, but date back to you know the, the global financial crisis in 08, 09, but also right back to 91, 92, which was a very deep real estate-led fall or crisis. And what I'm saying to our uh, the younger end of our cohort is there's never been a better time to learn, a better time to hone your skills, and you will be forever measured and perceived within the light of how you operated in this crisis. Your opportunity to learn, innovate, and prepare for your future has never been better. And what's really interesting, it may sound a little crass, but you know, a lot of people who are younger, they haven't really built their wealth program yet. They may well emerge into a repriced market that actually sets the table very nicely for their future. So we're trying to reflect this as a significantly positive life event where you're going to learn a hell of a lot, even though it's challenging financially. And the lessons you learn today will sustain your career as you move forward. And that's what we're trying to bring to our team and get them focused on. So it sucks to be at home all the time. It's no good being on two-dimensional. You want to get out there and, and interact again. But how you deport yourself today will make all the difference to your future tomorrow. Are you guys hiring? Are you looking for new talent? The only hiring we're doing is what's strategic. So there's certain areas where we had resource need and we're continuing with that program. We are backfilling critical spaces in certain areas and we've done a little restructuring in terms of our program. But I would say that rather than an out-and-out approval of our plan going into 2020, where you could just sort of move ahead with your budget, every new position has to be scrutinized and justified. But we have been making some hires. We've hired, I think we brought in three new people since uh, January, two of them through video interviews and conferencing, which is also yeah. a new- Yeah, then the training side of it too makes it complicated. Okay, sorry, I took us on a a tangent. Adam hates when I do that. I find it really interesting, the management of the people side. He just wants to talk about real estate. Let's talk about dirt. Yeah, It's cap rate and money and returns and yield (laughs) and all that (laughs) stuff. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, that's a good segue. You talked about a repriced market. I mean, maybe just give us your 30,000 foot view of what's transpiring and maybe hypothesize a little bit about what you think we're going to enter or come out into whenever this is over. Yeah. So generally heading into this and it happened so quickly. So let's, we almost rolled along with, with no concern and no impending doom until mid-March. I was in London expected to live there until the end of May and I had to bug out on St. Patrick's Day and get back here. So this all transpired very quickly right at the end of the quarter. So that was the very first challenge that most people in real estate face, particularly people who are operating funds that are traded like open-ended funds. On what basis do you set value? And there was no evidence in the market to indicate what the impacts might be. Uh, appraisal firms, appraisal associations around the world started to put material adverse change notes on their values, which then translated to some qualifiers on NAVs for funds that are traded. So the, all the open-ended funds. So there's a whole program that really was engaged. And I think one of the most encouraging things I've seen is the collaboration at the industry level. But it, with respect to this question and many, many others, The industry has really, really come together and collaborated in this space and really tried to utilize the collective wisdom and find a best practice. So our first course of action was how do you value? And we're still working through that. And I think it'll be another couple of months before we get any sort of empirical evidence from the market to sort of give us a real good insight on what's happened to cap rates, occupancy levels, what the knock-on effect might be on your rental rates. Those are all to be determined. We can all speculate where it might go, but it's difficult to tell. And for the first time ever in a crisis like this, we have unprecedented amount of liquidity coming through the governments and into government programs like the CERBS for commercial tenants and the programs to support residential tenants. It's very difficult to understand, first of all, is that enough? Is a three-month 
sort of window where you try to bridge them good enough. And we haven't been able to determine that. I think when we look at this from our standpoint, we don't think it's an immediate bounce back. We think that the portfolios and the strategies we have, particularly in the open-ended fund, have been set up to be durable. They're low levered, you know, not a lot of debt, not a lot of fixed hard costs on that side. So if they got tenants that are paying rent, then we're positively cash flowing and that's a good thing. And that's what real estate tends to do through these cycles is it tends to hang on to its income to a great degree. Yeah, it might get a little bit less in rental rate and we'll have a bit more vacancy, but if I roll back to early 90s, you know, I think I can't, don't quote me exactly, but I think we sort of peaked peak vacancy rates on average, topped out into the you know, low to mid 20s and then rolled back off of that. If you don't have any debt, you flip that on its head, you're, you know, you're 75 to 80% of your portfolio is churning income and you're in the black. So we expect income levels to sustain reasonably well. Hot spots or areas of greatest concern, obviously, are the service areas. So hospitality, retail, transportation-oriented tenants are all going to be significantly challenged. And they also are the greatest question coming out of this. At what point are we going to be comfortable, regardless of what the government allows us to do, going back into a crowded cafe, a sports stadium, getting on the subway or the tube? Those are all questions that society collectively are going to try and figure out together. And it's it really is difficult to predict human behavior in that regard. So I think short run, there's a lot of disruption. I think there will be some repricing. I think income will be off and vacancy will be up. So the greatest question to be answered is what's the duration of the current crisis? And I think the longer we're in economic lockdown, the longer the recovery period would be. If I were to speculate, it's kind of, if we're in lockdown for effectively two to three months, you know, I think the recovery is probably three, four times the length of the, of the shutdown. It'll take us another year to sort of come out of that, right? For one quarter in shutdown, it might take two, three, four quarters to come out because we got, and until you have a vaccine, which a vaccine, sorry, until you have that, which is the ultimate game changer, people are going to be very nervous about how they interact and how they work. You know, all. Peter, one of the, yeah, sorry to interrupt. Well, you know, one of the things, and I, of course, agree with everything you said. And one of the things that is an unknown, and I'm curious if you're seeing anything that might indicate, but, you know, capital flows and just the, the liquidity in the marketplace, whether that's on the investment side or the debt side or whatever part of real estate you play in, you know, people say track, follow the capital flows. Are you seeing anything? Like, you, do you feel like, I mean, you talk to some really big investors that they may be scaring away from real estate in any sense, just because of the uncertainty of what might be transpiring with retail and human behavior, obviously having such a large impact on real estate use that may just be maybe something that people are less likely to get involved in in the near term yeah. or midterm? Yeah. So so I would say direct reaction from our investor base has been measured and thoughtful. So they are, it's too early to tell exactly what's going on, but generally the larger players with capital and longer view are treating this as an unexpected black swan in the economic cycle, but we will recover. So it's a matter of bridging through the current crisis and setting yourself up to come out the other side. With that in mind, we've had a whole range of activities. So on the development side, most of those are closed-ended and the money sort of locked in and committed. In those scenarios, we're reevaluating, re-underwriting every project and every partner. And we are looking at, you know, what's with the new dynamic, what's the new set of assumptions and how do we work through and come out of this? So development is really, you know, almost 
slowed to a trickle. There's some work going on in existing. I think most projects that were planned have been put on hold for the time being. What will be interesting to see is what's the impact on the demand supply equation as you come out of this and how quickly does the market come back? Because you may have a supply side gap in that and that might actually improve results for some of the projects that were underway that get to complete early after coming out. So it's there's so many factors. You can't just lay down one uh, track and say that's going to be the deal. So that's development side. It's to a trickle. Everybody's reevaluating. Value creation would be difficult in this environment. So that's where it is today on the development side. The income side, no. Our mindset is we house the economy. Almost all enterprise, the entire supply chain, almost all of it ends up running under some kind of shelter. Some of it's moving shelter, but, but most of it's fixed. So the challenge for all of us coming out of this is not really a diminished demand for shelter. I think it's a capacity for the economy to pay for the shelter. So maybe rents are off a little bit. But I think more importantly is a complete rethink about the built form. So is the major retail shopping center with high order goods in its current configuration and size, is that the correct way to go forward? Or do we have to completely rethink and repurpose those? We have several, fortunately, we're exposed primarily to grocery and drug. Those centers, they're all in urban settings close to really good infrastructure. We bought them as land banks in any event, expecting them to be redeveloped at some point and intensified. So we got those. So we looked down the road and said, well, what does it mean for us today? It is, there's so many factors to consider. It's hard to tell exactly, except that you're going to need roofs to house that economy. So we have to figure out what roofs. So I'll give you a good example. You think about office, everybody's saying, well, does this prove now that we don't need office? Well, I don't know. I got people who are saying they'd like to be commuting back to the office and they miss they miss the collaboration and face-to-face contact and that sort of body language. You can read a lot by being in the room. We'll also miss what I call the intellectual intelligence, like the intellectual capital transfer between your newer workforce and your older workforce as they sit there on the phone. Everybody hears what they're talking about, right? That sort of osmosis of learning that goes on in an office environment. So I don't think office is dead. I think for the first time we're thinking maybe office is sort of multi-channel. So maybe it's a combination of work from home, work from office. You could argue that this crisis is going to require us to abandon the intensification of use on floor spaces, you know, maximize your floor space ratio. I think that might be going out the window. That would indicate a higher demand for office because Mm -hmm. tenants need more space. On the flip side, we just proved that you can work from home. So maybe we don't need more space because you'll only have half as many people coming in at any time. So I can sit here and speculate. It's too long for the podcast. But for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And if there was ever a time that the science of physics applied to business, now's the time. Trying to understand all these forces and the energy around them to determine what's the exact type of built form you need is going to be the biggest challenge. It's an interesting exercise, isn't it? Yeah, and I think everybody's going through it. You mentioned, you know, it's too early to look at, you know, rebalancing the asset mix that you're involved in. But another aspect, of course, would be geography. You know, the pain's not being inflicted evenly across the country. You know, you mentioned that you're into virtually every corner of the country. So can you comment on how you know, lopsided the distribution of the bad news is in the different geographies that you're active in? Yeah, and I think it, it roughly follows population density, it, it, to my mind. So although Vancouver seems to have gotten on it and done reasonably well, but I mean, I don't have any empirical evidence to show, but intuitively, the economies that open first and to the greatest extent are probably going to get a little bit of a leg up. I also think that this entire experience may reinvigorate I'll call them the secondary and tertiary markets. 
in that if you have a transit-rich community like, let's say, a KW or a Barrie in a, in a Toronto context, or maybe further out the Fraser Valley in a Vancouver context, all of a sudden, you may have businesses saying, well, we don't, we can't intensify use and people need space and distancing and they're fed up with the transit program anyway. Maybe these transit rich nodes are ready to go. Maybe suburban office isn't quite as bad as everybody thought it was. And maybe the businesses start chasing the talent back out as we get some distancing in space. That's really interesting because that completely flies in the face of the ecological arguments that we need to intensify land use and consume less land you got very different forces playing again. So and that impacts, I, I that impacts the department. That wealth out of it. Sorry? No, no. I, I, I was going to say that that theory would have an impact on rents, apartment rents, and single-family home prices. I think this crisis has accelerated trends that were already started. So the retail, the supply chain, retail, industrial transition. It is causing us to rethink other trends like office intensification and work-from-home models, etc. It's reawakened us to the need for focused investment in our public services, but the ones that matter, not the politically expedient, right? So healthcare, like this is laying bare poor stewardship on the part of, and I'm not talking about any particular political color, but poor stewardship on the part of our past governments in directing our capital into the right places. It's laying it bare and hopefully resetting people's mindset around priorities and accountability. So all these things are happening as a result of this, but I think they were already in play. This is just laying it bare and accelerating it and causing us to rethink about how we're going to operate. You know, that next nurses union debate negotiation on their wages is going to be interesting. Clearly, we know which side the public is going to support, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Maybe, well, I think it's just going to say on that trend, go ahead. about a movement out, so less intensified living, it requires a more concerted effort in transportation, which is the ultimate affordability tool. High-speed rail or reliable rail to outlying communities. If you go to London, you can get out to a very nice city in a matter of half an hour, and it's as far away as Barrie, and you can get there every day, almost same amount of time. That really impacts affordability. But you just talked about medical. You know, thousand-bed hospitals may be no longer the thing, right? You may have to rethink those hospitals. Maybe they're in the same vicinity, but they've got different HVAC systems. They're completely, they're isolation chambers. You know, your wings will be isolated with separate HVAC and air handling, et cetera. You may see more regional, better, more and better regional facilities set up in some of our secondary markets. So all of these things are coming. I just look at this as COVID is an interesting event. It has a tremendous amount of tragedy attached to it, for sure. And you can't diminish that. But it's also causing us to completely relook at the way we operate and function as a society. And we're in the real estate business. We house the society and we house the enterprise that serves that society. That won't change post-crisis. The demand for shelter will continue. Real estate should remain a very viable asset class because it's difficult to do much outside in Canada and sustain it through the, the winter months. So just broadly speaking, We'll manage through the current scenario. We'll address the impacts, which we've done before, and we will sort ourselves out and work out what does the built form need to look like on the other side of this crisis and how do we move forward in a, a more intelligent way, knowing what we know now. It would lead to, you've talked about longer term effects now, you know, five, 10 years down the road. The built form question is interesting in that, obviously, if you are three quarters of the way through a construction project right now, you can do very little with adjusting to what might be a new reality from COVID-19. But if you've got a piece of dirt that you're eyeballing, you know, that could be built with that in mind. Do you foresee any of your projects, again, early days, trying to incorporate more of an eye that this would be a long-term consideration 
a, uh, the idea of pandemic resiliency being a value to an asset. Think about if you had just had much larger elevators, right? Like, do you think that's an attraction in the immediate future, right? If someone was looking to buy a condo and you, you know, you could not be jammed into a small elevator with a number of people. I don't know how long that becomes an, or stays an attraction, but do you see the people adopting those types of things? I see people talking about those types of things right now, but we're missing one very important part of the equation is, is there a vaccine for what we've got? Because that may change sentiment. But I do think broadly, yeah, maybe you need, maybe you're going to have to build slightly bigger elevator. Your spec for elevator and condos might require a bigger footprint potentially. I think more importantly, it's air handling, air management systems where I could see condominium and residential building. You're almost Whatever you're doing technologically, I don't have the technical ability to explain it, but let's just put it this way. You want to ensure that whatever air comes in and out of an individual living space is completely filtered and free of any issues. So what kind of systems and filters and and air handling are we doing? You may rethink your lobbies a little differently. You may rethink your entry protocols. You know, maybe you need multiple entries, an entry and an exit. So I think anybody in this business is already starting to think about what it means for new builds what it means in terms of retrofitting what you do have. We're in the process of planning our move from our current location to a consolidated location at Royal Bank building. Our floor plan is changing. It's a fluid state right now in terms of how that lays out. Can you do benching anymore or hoteling anymore? Does anybody want to touch a phone that somebody else used the day before? So all these questions are coming through, but they're all right now highly speculative. And until we know exactly how this disease progresses. And if there is indeed a vaccine, it's going to be hard to determine. I think there's impact. I just don't know the degree of the impact that will occur until we have some of those metrics in place to weigh in on. While this feels like it is early days, it also feels like this has been going on forever. So it is <laughs> interesting that we don't have a lot of great information yet, but I'm sure we're all tired of the situation. We probably have the haircuts to prove it too. What haircut? We, yeah. my, <laughs> well, those that don't have video, you see Aaron's hair right now. <laughs> well, mine's worse. I'm uh, unfortunately I'm follically challenged on top, but I'm getting dangerously close to a skullet. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Adam, what was the name of the lawyer that we had on a couple weeks ago? I can't find her. Oh, right? Jane from uh, Jane from Benedict. Oh Jones. yeah, oh, Jane yeah. Helmstatter. I was sorry, yeah. that's what I was looking for. She had talked about you know we we I, that was early on, like that was early late March, maybe early April. She was talking about the use of force majeure and contracts and the implications it has on purchase and sale agreements and offers to lease and things like that. And one of the comments that she made that I found was really interesting is that after SARS, she's every contract you saw had a, a pandemic, you know, specific force majeure component to it. And then slowly but surely people just forgot about it. And now you never see it, right? And and yeah. we're, we're right now we're talking about how we got to have bigger elevators and you know different ingress or egress considerations or you know whatever it is. But I feel like slowly but surely we're going to get back to normal. It's just what's the time frame? Is it two years? Is it six years? Is it fifteen years? Right? I think to be trite, it's when people in general, society in general, on balance, feel safe. That's what I think it is. Yeah. You know, yeah. Once we start to feel safe and comfortable and secure then we'll take more liberties, uh, relax a little more around the social distancing and just, you know, things will evolve back. But I do think it's a period. I think the economic disruption that we're going to go through isn't a quick snapback. It's not the end of the world either, but it's going to be a progressive sort of evolution out of a downturn like every yeah. other. This one may be a little bit longer if the unemployment figures or the employment figures are what we think they are, that may last a little longer. I do think there's certain industries that are going to struggle for a considerable period of time. I think the travel industry is really going to struggle. 
it's just hard to feel like you can get on a train or a plane right now and feel comfortable. Do you have any hospitality exposure? We have hospitality exposure in one portfolio. It's a, a debt portfolio, but we're with a very strong operator and at a very low to loan to value. So we're feeling reasonably comfortable, but they are, you know, they're trying to completely rework how they're operating and what their future looks like. And I'm sure that some of the bigger portfolio managers are looking at their buildings and saying, what's an adaptive reuse post-COVID crisis um, real estate? Well, and maybe that's a good that's a good point to transition, Peter, into the future of, of your business. We had kind of mentioned off air. I'm curious what kind of opportunities you guys are circling or have identified. How do you put that plan into action without the certainty of time, right? Like we just talked about six years. I mean, who knows how long this thing takes. So what is your team talking about? What is your team going through? What exercises do you put in place to be ready to go, to be ready to pounce, quote unquote, when the time is right? So some of our, like our open fund is already in a position that has an ability to do value add and development and repurposing. So we're already looking for opportunities where we can recapitalize a distressed situation. Anybody who is highly levered going into this probably has some issues to work out and will have to dispose of or rework assets. So I think everybody in our position or anybody who feels they have capital supply continuing, maybe some of it's in advance, but some, we just had a, a call last week asking when they could come into one of our funds. So with the open-ended funds, if you get your valuation right, you reprice properly, you immediately de-stress the system because most of our big investors are trying to manage a broad portfolio where they rebalance against each equity class. And so if you don't move to market as quickly as possible, then they potentially overreact on the other side. So that's a big part of it. But um, Can you explain the logic a little bit more, Peter? I mean, for those that just don't understand, you've got a, like one of your pension plan investors, they've got this real estate investment, but obviously a whole bunch of other investments and they're trying to keep them all yeah. in equilibrium. So, like maybe explain that a little bit Well, more. so this group that has said, you know, when can we get back in? I believe felt they were a bit under allocated to real estate before this all happened. And they're now seeing this as an opportunity to come in at a repriced number and broaden their exposure. So dollar cost averaging in a way, and as long as we run our program properly and we're marketing to market, reflect current market, it gives them the opportunity to come in. And it also gives investors who are with us who might want to rebalance a little bit, the opportunity to redeem and rebalance and come out, but nobody really flattens. That was our experience in 0809. We ran a, an open-ended pool fund there, fairly substantial, Blair McCready and I, and we were able to go through that. Nobody flattened, everybody got their money, and we came out on the other end in a good position. But we moved to a monthly valuation, independent valuation schedule, and that that was the right thing to do at the time, so that helped us. But you know, they're long investors, so they're looking at this and saying, well, this is a moment in time. But you know my obligations to pay pensions and deal with my you know my downstream liabilities and promises still remain. I've got a blip in time, but hopefully, if I manage my portfolio and structured it well, I have things like real estate and infrastructure in there that run aren't highly correlated to say equities and and some of the other products they might invest in. So they're constantly, in a formulaic way, balancing out their portfolios to mitigate against exactly what we're talking about: these shocks in the system, in the market, the cycles so that they can deliver on their promise downstream. So those long thinkers, they're going, right, this is interesting. I might actually- Are the short thinkers looking at redemptions? In our world, I believe most, we haven't had anybody ask for any money yet. I say yet, because you never know. But in their world, what they're probably doing is saying, do I need to rebalance against the rest of my investment book, my rest of my assets and allocations? So some of them may, you know, if the quick fall in equities has come back a little bit, puts them offside on their real estate allocation, they might sell down some real estate to rebalance that 
portfolio and then ride the curves back up again. Others might actually just completely reconsider their allocations. Say, you know what? Now we always wanted to be a bit more in real estate, but we didn't like the pricing. Now we do like the pricing. You know, it's just been repriced notionally, or they're preparing for a repricing. And now we want to get in because we can ride a new price curve and get our allocations. And real estate delivers income and generally always will, because as long as we have enterprise and commerce and some kind of market, goods, services, raw materials, everything's got to move through that shelter system. So it has a sustaining, it's why it works if it's, there's, it's not, not risk-free, obviously, but if it's managed well and you're not over levered or geared, as they say in the UK, and you're thoughtful about where you are and what you're next to, long-term, good long-term infrastructure, you should have what you need to sustain yourself through these types of scenarios. Sorry, before we go, Adam, don't go anywhere. Do they really say geared over levered? They call it, uh, they call it gearing in the UK versus leverage. Of course they do. Which makes sense. You're gearing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. If I had a British client, I'd know how to talk to them now. This is uh, there this exactly. handy. <laughs> yeah, there's some nuances. The business is still exactly the same. We rent space <laughs> to tenants and take a, and get a rental payment. But yeah, different vernacular. A question uh, related to your sentiment now, because like what, what we've heard the last you know, 10 minutes in talking to you, I would say is a fairly positive outlook for navigating some tricky waters, not, not to downplay that there's not a lot of turbulence here. So would you say that you're less nervous now than you would have been in you know, the fall of 2008 or is it comparable? How does this compare to these same earlier days and other crises that you've managed to get through? Uh, maybe I'm not the person to answer that question because my view of sort of everything is you deal with what you had before you every day and it requires the same thought process, intellect and mechanics. It's what do we have to deal with? What's a sensible thing to do about it? And then set about doing it rather than panicking or worrying. My mindset is these things have always happened in the past. They will continue to happen in the future. I think actually we're going to be a little more volatile in the future. And I think that's not just because maybe you know maybe we're a little more susceptible than we have been in the past to these types of outbreaks. But also, the pace of change is so rapid. Things are moving so quickly on the technological front and change front that it, just, it will be a more volatile world. We'll have to respond and react more frequently. So that means that the skill that moves to the top of that set is your ability to assess what's happening and develop quickly and flexibly a plan to address what's in front of you. And that's what we're doing in the, in the pandemic situation. We're trying to keep everybody on an evil keel say, right, we're investment managers, we're paid to look after your capital and manage it through all scenarios, not just the upside. I mean, real estate's been on a, except for 08, 09, it really has been on a bull run for an unprecedented period of time. It's been quite remarkable. So this correction is definitely not the end of the world and may actually result in being, you know, having some exceptional opportunity on the other side. You know, so that's my point I opened with earlier. If you're a young person, you haven't built up your fortune yet, you'll just come out the other side of this in a repriced market. It might be perfect for you, right? So we're all going to be here tomorrow. The sun's going to come up. We have to eat, breathe, live. We're going to have some things to sort out. We're going to have some people that need to be helped for sure. We're going to have to rethink how we invest in our social welfare, in our health services, et cetera. We're probably going to be paying more taxes. Can't see how we get away from that. But fortunately, I think that's universally true right across the developed world. So, you know, if everything's equal, you do it. And I think we have to guard very carefully that we don't allow any one element of our ecosystem. So that might be business, labor, government, media, not allowed to overstep. There has to be checks on this stuff. So there is a bit of a risk right now where, you know, the state in a place of crisis 
starts to take advantage of the situation and maybe try and get a little more power, you got to watch that very carefully. Just as, you know, when you're too loose and you let business run wild, they tend to get greedy and take over too much. So we're going to have to watch as a society the balance between those different forces and make sure we get that right as well. And that'll be a challenge coming through this. You know, I'm not sure we all want to work for the government. And so we can't have government controlling every enterprise in the economy. That can't happen. Otherwise, we're your fully socialist system. So those are the things I'm th- I think about now that are personal. And I'm saying we have to be careful just that we get the right checks and balances. And there's a proper debate around what's happening and the true impact of it all. And I'm hoping governments have now a, a new set of eyes to view their priorities through. Not just a set of eyes, but maybe a bit of a mandate to take some action. Take some action, but most importantly, prioritize spending in a less self-interested way and more for the broader public good. Because I feel like all political parties and systems, the leadership groups in the developed world have, not through any sinister plot, but have gradually shifted to a self-interested state. How do I get elected? And what are the things that are politically expedient and beneficial, not what's the right thing to do or the best thing to do? Yeah. What gets votes, not what's in the best interest of society. You know, we haven't talked about it yet, Peter. And I think it's one of the last things on my list. I mean, you've got a variety of different investment funds through all different asset classes, all jurisdictions. But you've recently kind of entered or growing your debt platform, your debt fund. Maybe just talk about that strategy and your potential use in the future. Yeah, so we have been a bit player in the debt side within Fiera Real Estate. Fiera Capital has a private debt group that do things. But our experience, and I have a lending experience, that's where I started, commercial lending. My experience through the cycles is very often the opportunity to enter the market and get back into any sort of distress in the market comes through the debt channels. It's usually the lenders that are in charge and drive the change mechanism in there. And so we're preparing to be in a position with capital to bring liquidity to that part of the business. And we'll be looking for opportunities to step in, potentially solve problems for lenders or for portfolio owners who are maybe a little over levered and need to uh, work their way out of some issues. So we think that's where generally the opportunities start to emanate from the debt side. And eventually, obviously, as things get repriced, equity is back in as well. But early days, we think that is where you get in. Well, as a lender, I'm happy to hear that because at First National, of course, I think we've said this multiple times, we're in a great situation with plenty of partners, maybe maybe FIAR in the future to help keep us deploying capital. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. I'd like to thank First National for powering the podcast. Thank you, Peter, for coming on. That was fantastic. Thank you to Informa for introducing us to Peter and for helping sponsor the podcast. And of course, last but not least, thanks, Adam, for helping co-host. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.